0: Turn to 1 John chapter 2, and let's pray. Our Father, we are your people, the sheep of your pasture, so we ask that you lead us to green pastures uh, where we can be nourished, whether those pastures are near and accessible or far away over mountain passes, we trust that you have in store for us good things, So may we undertake the effort to understand your word, where it is difficult, with the enthusiasm of knowing that our good shepherd is feeding us. O Lord, may we ultimately feed on Christ, who is your highest revelation and the best food for our souls. Give us these graces, we pray, through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ, amen. If you would stand for the reading of the word today, we will focus on 18 through 21, but we'll read uh, this larger section of 18 through 25. The apostle says, children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has made to us, eternal life. Amen. Praise God. You may be seated. can be devastating for us, frustrating, um, confusing, disorienting, perhaps even tempting at times when the people we know in our families or our churches or even a whole denominations adopt dangerous and unorthodox teaching. Um, perhaps they confess Christ, perhaps they don't, perhaps they confess him and their actual life's creed and their practice betrays their profession They've apostatized time and time again in the history of the church. The beloved teacher um, has shifted into unorthodox viewpoints and people follow him because false teachers are are charismatic and likable. They have a little error mixed in with a lot of truth. And while it's generally clear in hindsight who those people were in history, um, in the middle of it, when people you love are involved, when the teachings are speaking directly to your own relevant context and problems and concerns and interests, it can become a very disorienting and even a test of our faith. The faith of many have been shaken by departures and schisms in the church. You hear things like this. By, by their love, they will know that you are my disciples. Well, the church is always dividing and dividing and, and, and in con- controversy, doctrinal controversy. Surely it can't be right. Just fooey on that, right? that. Just leave it alone. These are the kind of doubts that crop up in the church in the midst of these struggles. Today we get a hint at what might be going on in the church that John writes to. We don't know for sure what his readers were going through, but this much is fairly obvious. There was some kind of schism, and John sees the need to pastorally reassure them in the midst of it which suggests to me that this schism was, as they always are, painful and confusing. And John pastorally issues here some grounding reminders in the midst of a shaky situation. This is probably, I I see it as the beginning of a, a bit of a transition into a larger section that emphasizes one of the main themes in 1 John, and that is abide. The theme of abiding. Um, staying, remaining, persisting, live here in this space, in this reality, abide here. The Greek word "meno," abide, occurs 24 times in the book of 1 John. Um, and we've seen it thematically already quite a bit in the book, but now he begins in earnest to direct our attention to this issue of abiding, remaining while others are departing. Our section today is a reminder to us and to the saints in a disorienting situation that this, people departing, difficult departures, is a part of God's overarching plan for the church, despite how it may feel. And it is the beginning of John urging us to abide in what we know to be true despite these difficult departures. So John offers us here three reminders for those distressed by difficult departures in the church. The first reminder is temporal. Uh, He wants us to know the time or the season that we live in. The second reminder is relational. He wants us to understand the purpose of schism in the church. And the third reminder is spiritual. He wants to remind us of the realities that we are, that we have the truth in us by virtue of the indwelling spirit. So three reminders, temporal, relational, and spiritual. So the first is the temporal reminder, verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. It is the last hour. This is why I call it a temporal reminder. It is the last hour. He's saying, dear children, I know different teachings and the departure of these people from your midst and and from the apostolic teaching is very frustrating, very disorienting. But remember the season of redemptive history that God has placed you in. Dear children, it is the last hour. Remember that. Children is the, the Greek word paideia. We've seen this before. It's a term for very small children or infants. It's one John uses frequently as a term of endearment for the saints. And uh, here we just see John's paternal and earnest pleading and an endearing tone reinforcing his assuring message during a shaky time. It's like a small child afraid to jump into his father's arms. And he says, little ones, ch- child, little children, it's okay. Listen to my voice. And why then does he say something that maybe we wouldn't initially say is the most reassuring uh, comment? It is the last hour. How is that reassuring? To understand what he means by last hour, I think we need to, to look at his comments about this infamous figure, the Antichrist. So then then I'm saying that the, the doctrine of the Antichrist is also reassuring, which is a bit odd. But it's also significant that in this context, this doctrine of the Antichrist is reassuring because we can get so caught up in the, the phenomenal or the things we think are phenomenal in Scripture that we lose sight of their actual significance in context and the, the details of the phenomenal might be obscure or difficult, but their purpose in context rarely is. We can understand what they mean, unless we obscure it by our own phenomenal fanaticism. I'll offer you you a brief summary of of what I think this figure is, the Antichrist, and then I'll offer you some rationale. Um, Antichrist... It means, anti means pseudo or, or in the place of, or it can mean in opposition to. And we see really both of these applied in Scripture to this this figure. Um, we see this idea of, of in the place of Christ in Matthew. Jesus says, Matthew 24, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. But I think John's emphasis here is on opposition I'm of the persuasion that the Antichrist is the same figure described by Jesus, by Paul, by John. Um, He goes by different names. Uh, The false Christs or false prophets that we see in Matthew 24 from Jesus. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction in 2 Thessalonians 2. The beast in Revelation 13. Um, And one broad name we can use for this figure is The end-time opponent. The end-time opponent of Christ. I think this this is probably a figure to come in the future, at the end of the age, who who fulfills this description. But I also would add, I don't think it's exegetically necessary for there to be a single person that fulfills this this role, but a spirit of antichrist that afflicts the church throughout the age. And, of course, there have been many attempts to identify the, who's the person, who's the Antichrist? Is it, is it the Pope? Um, is it in, in conservative uh, culture, is it every Democratic American president? Uh, who is the Antichrist? Well, I, I don't think that's really a helpful uh, thing to pursue, um, I think it'd require really a whole sermon or a series or a book to discuss everything relevant to Antichrist. But just briefly consider a few things. We have a hint from John when he says, you have heard, you have heard the Antichrist is coming. You know about this. And also when he says, therefore, we know it is the last hour. So for John, the arrival of these figures, these deceivers, is indicative. It's signatory. It signifies something. It signifies the times. It signifies for him the arrival of the last hour. And where might they have heard about this? How do they know about this? Well, we can see it in the subnoptic Gospels, uh, the writings of Paul. And maybe they heard it about from whoever brought them the Gospel initially. Um, Yarborough, he says that John's sense of history at the crossroads is mainstream apostolic. In other words, this is is throughout the New Testament. But all of these sources in the New Testament have another source, a common source, namely the Old Testament and converging particularly on the book of Daniel where there is foretold this an in time or in the in the greek in the septuagint translation often is it's, it's aura, uh for hour in those places so there's a direct reference to to an hour the last hour this in time opponent of the messiah in daniel and and he's an opponent of christ's people as well there so just one example daniel 8 23 to, through 25 And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So. It's so a complicated topic, the Antichrist. There's a whole boatload of things we, we could say um, to, to cover the Bible's teaching on this figure. But I think this is enough to see that John is applying the concept of this prophesied in-time opponent to his present situation. D.A. Carson summarizes the point nicely. He says, John's evidence that it is the last hour is tied to the presence of many deceivers, Antichrists, who anticipate the ultimate Antichrist. This is how we know it is the last hour. So while Antichrist, singular, is is coming, future tense, what he calls in chapter 4, verse 3, the spirit of Antichrist... Is present and active among many antichrists (plural) who have come. Past or present tense. So for John, the the difficult departures, the the presence of deceivers in the midst of the church. Um, th- this is not just a comparison with with the prophecies or from Daniel or, or a comparison with what he has heard Jesus or Paul say. It is for him a realization. It's an inauguration of fulfillment of the prophesied in time opponent, whose uh, arrival signifies that it is the last hour. But I think, with that understanding in mind, we can kind of understand what John means by "it is the last hour." He doesn't mean Jesus is going to come back in two weeks. He means we're in the la- the final epoch. All that, le- that is left in redemptive history between our time and-, and the return of Christ is nothing. Just Jesus coming back. This is the last season of redemptive history. In which, according to Daniel, the Messiah will be opposed, his people will be afflicted. And we'll conclude with the return of Christ. Calvin says here, We must understand the design of the the apostle that he calls the last time during which all things shall be so completed that nothing will remain except the last revelation of Christ. To return... Why is this temporal reminder about the Antichrist in the last hour a grounding reminder for the saints in the difficult and shaky time of people departing, leaving the faith, leaving the church? Why is it a reassurance from the voice of their spiritual father? Because I think it is a reminder that even this confusing time where it may appear that God's kingdom is not not advancing as we think it should. It is part of the plan. It is prophesied. It's coming to pass now. In the season of unrest, of, of division, of difficult departures, of Christ's opponents afflicting the church with deceptions, actually the kingdom is unfolding exactly as Christ had always intended. And so we should not be overly discouraged by it, even though it's painful for us. We should not be tempted to depart with those departing, and adopt their alternative teachings and expressions nor should we be so devastated and distraught over these occurrences so the temporal reminder is an encouragement to abide in Christ and in the apostolic gospel not not in a season of just of ease but a season of great difficulty as well we should abide we should remain now the next reminder that he gives us is the relational reminder or what we might call a social or even ecclesial, a church reminder. In verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Who among us doesn't have family members, friends, former church members that we were with, the denominations we were part of, that have drifted into unbelief and apostasy and unorthodoxy. They, they've abandoned the once for all delivered faith by, by either word, by deed or by creed, one or the other. But we all have that experience. And, and man, they, these people really seem to know Christ. Maybe we even looked up to them as leaders or more pious than us. They were more involved than us. They were teachers or missionaries and they they abandoned Christ. What are we supposed to make of that? Seems to be the question that John is getting ahead of here in this uh, verse 19. In chapter 1 verse 3 he said, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And it really seemed like we had fellowship, divine fellowship with these people. We were sharing in what seemed to be this divine community and then poof, everything changed and they left. Now I know we know the theological answer here. This, this verse, I think, is probably one of the best answers to this question. Perhaps the best there is in Scripture. But we should pause for just a moment to consider the emotion of it as well. The tragedy, the disorientation, the confusion. Because I think an accurate theological answer with a bad emotional response is a callous shrug of the shoulders. Well, they must not be elect then. I'll just go my own way. Paul, in the election chapter in in Romans 9, begins this way, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We should feel the weight of these difficult departures. Why does it have to be this way? Why, why is there such difficulty and strife? Why is there schism in the church? It doesn't feel victorious. Why is it not just the dastardly deeds of the world out there and us and Jesus and our happy place in here? There is internal turmoil and strife in the church and why are there wolves and why are there tares that grow up in the church? John's response here is brilliant, it's pastoral, it's succinct, and it's another reminder of reality in order to ground disoriented saints. He first offers them the straightforward theological answer. This has happened because they never really were a part of us to begin with, even though it looked like it. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would not they would have continued with us. This assumes at least two uh, theological truths that we might summarize under the theological terms um, the perseverance or preservation of the saints as one and uh, the doctrine of the visible and the invisible church on the other. The preservation or perseverance of the saints is this doctrine that God keeps those who are truly His. Those who are true believers, who have been regenerated, who have been brought to newness of life, they will never experience spiritual death again. True believers will abide. This is something he's assuming. Um, He says in 1 John 5.18, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. John also reports Jesus saying in John 10, 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So the faithful or the, the sheep of Christ, the elect, will persist. John assumes this. If they had been a part of us, they wouldn't have left. second doctrine, he assumes, is that of the visible and invisible church. Uh, The visible church is that which we can see. We can see the congregation in the pews or or the chairs. We cannot expray people's hearts and determine heart of stone, heart of flesh, heart of stone, heart of flesh. We can also see a universal church stretching back to the beginning, to the first professing believer, whoever you might identify that as, Adam, Eve, Abel, um, all the way back, And all over to the globe, up till now and even into the future, we can identify the church. But we can't know who among those professing believers will be standing with us in the throng of worshipers on the last day. That's the invisible church, that which we can't see. Jesus told us there are wheat and tares in the church. He told us there are some people who are in the vine, in him, in a superficial way, but they do not abide in him. And they will be piled up and burned. So we can be baptized. We can go through the motions. We can attend all the church functions, but still not be members of the invisible church. Paul says, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything but a new creation. We have to be born again. Some will remain in the church as secret tares through the whole way, through their whole life, up to their deathbed and die. But we should also not be surprised when some tears begin to show their true colors. Paul says in 1 Timothy five twenty four, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them. We see them, but the sins of others appear later. We don't always know, but John says, this is one way we know. They begin to show their true colors. So this is the theological answers. There's wheat and there are tares. There's the visible and invisible church. There are some members of the fellowship who are not true members of that divine fellowship that John spoke about in chapter 1. And departure, failure to abide, whether it's among God's people or a failure to abide in the teaching of the apostles, manifests true inward realities of the heart. And this should grieve us profoundly when it happens. Apostasy is weep worthy. But it ought not to shake us it ought not cause us to question our faith. Or the plan of Christ for His church. Now, not only does He give us a, a theological answer, but also here more of a teleological answer—a a purpose. Why does schism happen in the church? And one reason, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. It's revelatory. Jesus tells us that ultimately the tares and the wheat will be sorted out in the end. But in the meantime, schism is one way we can distinguish truth from falsehood. So it is, in fact, a grace for us. Jesus says you will know them by their fruits. There's a plant called the gold of pleasure. Um, It grows with flax and it looks like flax. And they they have to wait till the end when they're harvesting and, and distinguish Based on seed characteristics, whether it's whether it's gold of pleasure or flax seed, it can be distinguished by its fruit and fruit in the book of first John is what John is on about the fruit of obedience, the fruit of brotherly love. In the next passage, we'll see the fruit of belief in Jesus if they depart in any of those senses. Though there may be characteristic similarities, we can confidently say they are not of us and they were never of us to begin with. Paul tells us something similar in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. He says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I think that's a great response to any of those who complain. The church is always dividing. Paul says there must be factions among you. It's a a reality until Jesus comes back. And this clarifies for us an error that many people make. Jesus says, you'll know my disciples by their love. But you church people, you're always splitting and dividing and fighting. If you really loved each other, you just get along. On the one hand, we should listen to this criticism because we can easily become petty and pedantic and we get ourselves caught up in in what Paul calls foolish controversies. And we do not remember Paul's admonition insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. At the same time, there are things worth fighting over, worth dividing over. J. Gresham Machen says that that the really important things are the things about which men are inclined to fight. Uh, friends tell me about certain doctrines. Uh, well, the church has been debating that for for so long. I just it doesn't matter. I think the church has been debating that for so long. It matters. <laughs> Notice in in uh, 21 through 25, the next passage, and really many points throughout the rest of the book, the creedal emphasis that John has, that what we believe is particularly important, and and especially what we believe about Jesus, our Christology, is worth separating over. In First John 2 22. Who is the liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. And similarly in in 1 John 4, 3, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So schism is revelatory for us when it's about what we believe, when it's creedal. We can add with John, schism also is appropriate when it is moral or or an issue of love. In chapter 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. A practice of sinning. This is a moral issue. And he won't repent. He is of the devil, and the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That's an appropriate schism. Unrepentant, immorality. Also, love, 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So while we should do everything in our power to avoid schism including calling those who are departing from the once-for-all-delivered gospel and who, who refuse to repent, we call them to repentance. We exercise appropriate measures of church discipline according to the Scriptures in Matthew 18 and reasoning and persuading and seeking to, to bring them back gently. But when they do leave, we lament, but we're not shaken by schism. We should not become disillusioned because the church has not achieved its own sort of ecclesiastical utopia. We should persist, grieved, but also encouraged that even this, th- this difficulty is part of the way Christ has chosen to run his church. And we should see the good in it, that those who depart do so, that it might become plain to us that they are not of us. This is the purpose of, of this relational or ecclesial reminder to us. And the final reminder is a spiritual one. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, John says, and you have all knowledge. John pre- preempts another question from the the disoriented saints. Uh, that is, that they those who have departed, they seem... To have something going for them over there, sort of waffling. Their objections have some merit. They've raised some legitimate concerns, and I want to be charitable and give the benefit of the doubt. And honestly, the community they're forming looks really pretty good. There's something appealing about it. But John reminds them, and kind of going back to the already theme that we saw a couple weeks ago: you already have been anointed by the Holy One. You already have all knowledge. In other words, you are where you need to be. Remain, abide, persist. John here, he sets up a fascinating contrast. Those who have departed are called Antichrist, Antichristos, Christ, Christos meaning the anointed one. And here in verse 20, believers are called anointed. Literally, you, you have an anointing which is the Greek word chrisma. So they are antichristos, but you are chrisma. Robert Yarborough summarizes this point well. He says the climactic coming of the anointed one results in a whole community that revels in a derivative anointing. This concept of anointing reaches back to the Old Testament. Uh, the tabernacle and, and the priesthood are good examples. Um, items that were to be consecrated and used for the temple were anointed with oil and thus set apart unto a particular purpose. Likewise, the priesthood was, was anointed with oil and set apart to their office. Scholars debate which person of the Trinity here is the Holy One. You've been anointed by the Holy One. Um, And I think Stott is probably right that that he says it's either God in general uh, or Jesus. Both are called the Holy One. Habakkuk 3.3, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. And Jesus is called the Holy One in John six. Uh, 69, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Um, but I, I agree with those who say, honestly, it doesn't matter. The effect is still the same, and God is the one anointing us. I think we should not understand or include the Holy Spirit as consideration, as the Holy One in particular, except for as a part of the Trinity, because the Holy Spirit seems actually to be. The consecrating oil. He is the anointing oil. And God is the one doing the act of consecration. Even as Jesus was anointed with the Spirit, so are we anointed with the Spirit. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And Jesus applies that, that verse to himself several times in the New Testament. Also some interpreters have identified the knowledge here, and you have all knowledge as the anointing. Um, but actually, that's the result of the anointing, is the knowledge. So all of that, to say, the, the upshot, true saints have been anointed by God with the Holy Spirit unto all knowledge, by God, with the Spirit, unto knowledge. And what is John's purpose here in this reminder, this spiritual reminder? I think it is he he is combating potential doubt. Well, I care about the people who, who left. Some of them were my Sunday school teachers growing up. And what should I do? They're telling me that the gospel that you John, preach is a good place to start, but I need to progress to new, bigger, better, higher levels of knowledge. What am I supposed to do? And John is saying, relax and remember your anointing. You did not believe our our gospel because you were smarter or wiser than anyone else. You know Christ because you were anointed by the Holy Spirit. Set apart unto Christ, and you have... A fullness of knowledge in Christ. Not that you know everything, but you have what you need. You do not need to graduate to higher degrees of knowledge. In fact, John points out in verse 21, he essentially, even I'm not trying to tell you to believe something new here. I'm just reminding you to abide in the things you already know. He says in verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. We were walking out the door this morning. I I told Abel, Abel, grab your water bottle. And Kelly said, you're carrying Abel's water bottle. (laughs) How many times have you been looking throughout the house for your glasses? Somebody says, they're on your face. Our doubts are like that, I think, especially perhaps for younger people or younger Christians. I'm seeking the truth. I want to know the truth. And like Solomon, sometimes we try everything under the sun that's out there and finally circle back around to what we affirmed in the beginning. John wants to short short circuit that doubt and he reminds us, you have all knowledge. You know everything you need to know in Christ. You already have the truth, and no lie comes from the truth. Your glasses are on your face. So this third reminder, you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and you have all knowledge already. And the implication is, again, abide, persist in what you know to be true, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as preached by the apostles in the Word of God. So, I think easier said than done if we understand the gravity of apostasy and departure. But do not be shaken, disillusioned, or demoralized by difficult departures. Rather, be reminded, we are in the last days. So we can expect antichrists, We can expect unbelievers to to depart from our midst, manifested their hidden realities. But we, we can stand firm in the knowledge of the truth of the ancient and established apostolic gospel to which we have been consecrated by God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.